Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church. I am now 55 years old. Birthday yesterday. 55 years old. We y'all clapping for y'all be old one day. Y'all will know. There ain't nothing to clap. No, I'm excited. I'm excited. I, after all of these years of being pastor at Woodburn, I can now officially join the senior adult group. 55 is the cutoff. So now I'm going to be all up in the senior adult group. I'll be parking in the handicapped parking places. I will be taking your bus trips. I'll be uh, absolutely eating casseroles with y'all. Uh, I'll be watching Wheel of Fortune and falling asleep before the big money. All of that stuff, man. I am, I am senior adult material now. Uh, yeah, it's no big deal. Casey's been 55. For, she's a little older than I am, as, as you all know. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been married to a 55-year-old woman for half this year, so uh, I'm, I'm all about it. Open your Bibles to Luke 17. Let's get started. If you're joining us by way of audio or video podcasts or in the cafe, we love you guys. Thank you so much. Luke chapter 17 is where we are. Remember that we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke between now and Easter. Uh, that does require me to preach uh, uh, to, to read some big chunks of scripture, and I'm doing that on purpose. I'm going to read more verses today than I will actually preach, but I like the idea, first off, of us getting that, that, those big chunks of, of scripture, the word of God, into us, and I also like the idea that there's scripture read in worship that we don't preach. Let the word speak for itself. It doesn't always need a preacher to come along behind it and, and tell you what it means. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Uh, if you run across a verse or a passage that I'm not going to expound today, well, then you know what you got to do this week. You do some study, read, and learn, and let the Word of God uh, be alive in your own life and your heart. Luke 17, let's jump right in. I will be preaching. I'm going to talk specifically about verses 1 through 10 today, uh, but I'm going to read the entire chapter, so let's jump in. Luke chapter 17, this is the Word of the Lord. One day Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then if there's repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. Apostle said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. The Lord answered, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it would obey you. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No. He says, prepare my meal, put on your apron, serve me while I eat, then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? course not in the same way when you obey you should say we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty verse 11 as Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria and as he entered a village there ten lepers stood at a distance crying out Jesus master have mercy on us he looked at them and said go Show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, 
came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. And this man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see the day when the Son of Man returns, but you won't see it. People will tell you, look, there's the Son of Man, or here he is, but don't go out and follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man comes. But first, the Son of Man must suffer terribly and be rejected by this generation. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat and the flood came and took them all away. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building, until the morning Lot left Sodom. Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yeah, it will be business as usual right up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a person out on the deck of a roof must not even go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return home. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you let your life go, you will save it. That, that night, two people will be asleep in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Where? The disciples asked. Jesus replied, just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. That's a whole lot of stuff I ain't preaching, y'all. <laughs> Sorry about that. Go back to verse 1, chapter 17. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's start right there. I didn't do all the things I wanted to do this past week. It being my birthday week and all, there's still a, a whole lot of stuff I had to do that I didn't necessarily want to do, but I did it anyway. I took the trash out to the curb, as I do, yes. I don't like that. Uh, brought it back to the house, too. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like that. I, I don't enjoy that. I do it. I, I, don't, I don't like it. Um, this week, I, I ate really good. I, I, I was good. Uh, I ate mostly lean meats and fruits and vegetables. Now, what I wanted was mostly macaroni and cheese, but, but I ate, you know, the lean meat, fruits, and vegetables. Um, I was kind a lot this week. I, I wasn't always feeling kind, but, but I showed kindness. I, I, I did that. I drove the speed limit. That's hard. But, but I, I drove the speed limit, mostly. Um, just a whole lot of things that I did that, honestly, I don't like to do. I don't even want to do. But I, I, I live my life with just this knowledge that there are certain things I'm supposed to do. I do a lot of things because I'm supposed to do them. And honestly, 
that's reason enough for me to do them. I, I live my life with a, with a sense of oughtness. I, if I can use that word, a sense of oughtness. I, I know what I ought to do, and often I just simply try to do what I ought to do. It's called duty. It's simply called duty. It's a word that isn't necessarily popular in our day and time. Uh, my generation and the generation behind me, we really don't relate to this word the way our parents and grandparents did. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents, they did a lot of things out of duty. And our country, our society to this day continues to, to, to live with a strong foundation primarily because of the way these people did their duty. They fought the wars. They, they build the communities. They sacrifice in ways that their children and grandchildren, we don't do. We, we, we don't. It, it's duty. Duty comes from that word, you know, means something is due. It's the idea that something is owed as a debt. So you live your life with a, with a sense of indebtedness, an idea that, that, that you owe this. Debt has to do with obligation. Duty has to do with obligation. Lots of us don't like that feeling of being obligated. But it's not necessarily an unhealthy thing. Obligation is a good thing. Duty has to do with something you do because you should, because it is right. Again, it doesn't say a word about what you want to do, what's fun to do, what's easy to do. We're just talking about now what you're supposed to do, what, what is right. It, it, it's called duty. As I say, our parents, our grandparents typically would say something like, forget your happiness, do your duty. It's not about happiness. But now, in our day, in our age, man, people do not relate to duty. I mean, I actually read an article this week telling people how that if you simply live your life with all of these shoulds and have tos, that will actually block your ability to love your life. That's a quote. You will block your ability to love your life if you live your life with a lot of shoulds and, and have tos. Interesting. The, the implication is you've got to break free. You've got to somehow shake loose uh, all of these shoulds and have tos, and you've got to learn to just be you. You've got to live for you. You need a little more me time in your life. Understand? Because everything else is related to obligation, duty. But I, I really just want you to understand, especially these first 10 verses of Luke chapter 17, that, that your life as a disciple carries a sense of duty. As a follower of Jesus, as a servant of Christ, you have duty. You have things that you do because they are right, not because they're easy. I know that the culture tells us that you can't live with shoulds and have-tos. It will block your ability to love your life. But if you notice what Jesus says at the end of this chapter, it's really sort of interesting. The person who loves their life, Jesus says, the person who clings to their life, what happens? You'll lose it. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. So maybe as it turns out, loving your life is not the goal. Maybe living your life in such a way where you just love your life, what if as it turns out, that's not the secret to life at all? What if it has more to do with duty? Luke chapter 17 speaks of duty. Absolutely duty 
and your life as a disciple carries this sense of duty. You have obligations because of your debt to Christ. You, you, you do some things out of duty. They're not really easy things. Let's jump right in. Verse 1. There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting it would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. But what Jesus is saying here, it would be better to die a horrible death. You see that? It would be better to die a horrible death than to be the cause of someone else falling into sin. So watch yourself. Understand, it's, it's, it's this, first, uh, this first factor, this first call of duty for us is, is I would just say, you've got to be a good influence. You're going to answer for the way that your life rubs off on others. And you have influence. You have some influence over somebody. Now notice Jesus says you don't want to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So I guess our first, our first implication there is that we're talking about children, perhaps. Children are vulnerable. Children are always looking for a good example. And what Jesus says here is the world is going to be... Filled with bad examples, don't be one. You can't be the bad example. There are going to be lots and lots of, of, of things for people to stumble over in this world. Don't be one. You have an obligation to live for Jesus. You understand? The world's going to be filled with bad Christians. Don't be one. You, you see that? You have an obligation. You have a duty to be a good influence. Now, you think about children, and, and let's stop there for a moment, because a lot of us have children in our lives. You, you have sons, you have daughters, you have grandchildren, you have nieces, nephews. You have children in your life that one way or the other, they're going to look at you and assume that your life is a model, that if they see you doing it, it's going to be okay for them to do it. And, and kids don't think like that. They don't ration like that. They just sort of absorb our example. You know, some of you say, you know, you know, Pastor Tim, I'm sorry. Sometimes my mouth gets going and, and I just, you know, I, I just, you know, it's, it's words just come out. But that's just, you know, I'm like my grandma. Like that. my grandma was like that, you, you know. Now your grandma was, you know, mean. You know, we all remember her. And, and that's the thing. You, you don't study. Your parents or grandparents say, I'm going to be just like that. And, and yet. And yet, we somehow are, are born in that stream, and we find it very difficult to swim upstream, and so we just simply fall in, and we often begin to imitate our parents, our, our grandparents, our, our aunts, our uncles, our, our family. And what Jesus is saying here is you have to take very, very seriously the, the spiritual effect of your life on others. Do you understand, Dad, that every time you lose your temper, you have children in, in your house that watch you that they hear your language, they watch the way you blow your top every single time a little something doesn't go your way. And, and, and your sons are going to struggle with that. Your son one day is going to struggle because he's going to open his mouth and his daddy's going to come out. You understand? Your daughter is going to open her mouth and mama comes out and, and, and you don't understand the, the spiritual obligation that comes with that example. You're an example. Your children watch you. Your children will be just like you. 
So you're raising your kids, and it's Sunday, but mom and dad are tired, and they just decide to take a Sunday off. You understand? Mom and dad take a Sunday off. And, and then so you explain to the kids, no, we're not going to go to church today. We're going we're gonna to take a Sunday off, you know, and watch Facebook Live or, or in our pajamas. You understand? Uh, maybe that sounds like a good idea for mom and dad, but what does that teach the children? That you could just wake up on Sunday and just decide if it's going to be a church day or not. You understand? In other words, you're not teaching your children to live with a sense of oughtness that we do certain things as a pattern because it's right. We teach our children, you just ask yourself what you feel like doing today, and then you just do a whole lot of that. Do you understand? Jesus says, it'll be all kinds of people pointing children in the wrong direction in this world. You don't be one of them. You don't be the one pointing children, especially your own children, in the wrong direction. They're learning how to think, how to talk, how to live like Christians by watching you. They'll have lots of bad examples. Mama, don't be one. You have an obligation to be a good example. You have a a duty to live your life as a believer of Christ in such a way that points the people under your influence toward Jesus. You will answer for the way your life rubbed off on others. And Jesus says, you really need to watch yourself. It will be better to die a horrible death. This is what Jesus means when he says, it would be better for you if somebody just, you know, tied a car around your neck and pitched you into the ocean. If you just drowned in a horrible way, that's going to be better than the day you have to stand up and explain why it is that people were stumbling over your life in the life that you lived. Now, when Jesus says these little ones, I don't think he's only talking about children. I think it includes children because I think children are among the most vulnerable, the ones who most need a good example. I think little ones, though, can also apply to anyone under your influence, anyone who's vulnerable to your influence, and in certain situations, any one of us can have people vulnerable to our influence. There are lots and lots of temptations to sin, Jesus knows, in this world. The thing is, you can't be the one that's giving people temptation. You can't be the source of that. It will be better to die a horrible death than to be the person in this life that leads other people to sin. Do you ever think about this? Like that high school party where everybody's just passing around beer and, and passing around for the very first time. Like kids are tasting alcohol for the very first time. The, the thing is, you know, you're part of that. Like you're part of passing that down the line. But you don't know... Which of those kids is going to be an alcoholic? And you're literally giving them their very first taste of the alcohol that's going to ruin their lives. You don't think about that. We don't ever play the whole movie forward. We're just doing our thing. It's just a party and everybody's doing it. When Jesus says in this world, what everybody does, you can't do it. There may be a whole lot of people doing it. Don't be one of them. You understand what I'm saying? It's simple, 
It's practical, but you have to pay attention to the life you live because it has an effect on other people. And there will be lots and lots of bad examples. You can't be one. Have I said that enough yet? You can't be one. You don't want to be the, the guy that talks a girl out of giving up her virginity. You don't be that guy. The world is full of creepy men who take advantage of women. Don't be one. Are you hearing me? There are so many ways to lead other people off a cliff. Don't be that person. Pay attention to who's watching you. Pay attention to who is vulnerable to your influence, and you be a good influence. It's an obligation. It's your duty, and it's the first words out of Jesus' mouth here when he's talking to his disciples. There will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. You don't want to be that person. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. Better to die a horrible death than to live your life as a bad example, as a bad Christian. So watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Then, next one. If another believer sins... Okay, is that going to happen? Let me just be honest. Is that going to happen? If you don't know for sure, just lean up right now, look down your pew, and then ask the question again. You know, are we going to sin? Every one of us, every single one of us, I am going to sin. I don't, I don't plan. I'm not saying, like, I'm going to sin like, I'm, like it's on my schedule. But inevitably, I will. Inevitably, I will. What this verse describes is, is a community of people who know that it's inevitable that they will sin, but at the same time, they don't want to give in to that. They don't want the devil to win the, the battle, the, the victory over their lives. They want to get on a path where every single day we're not exactly the people we ought to be, but, but neither are we the people we used to be. More and more every day we're, we're becoming transformed to be like Jesus. I mean, this is what we want. I, I want to become more like Jesus. I, I want to be a good example. But I need help in that. I'm not very good at, at, at seeing myself. Now, I'm actually pretty good at seeing your sins. Like all of you. Like I can stand back right now and just look across and think, yep. Like I can see your sin, but I'm not very good at seeing mine. And, and it works both ways. Because you all can look at me and think, well, I don't believe I would do that if I were, you know. I, I, think, I think Pastor Tim needs to consider, you understand, it's the same way with me. You can see me. You see, there's so much about me that I'm blind to. Like, for example, I can't see the back of my own head. One day I was, y'all know my sister Tracy, she's awesome. Uh, she has no filter. And so one day, Tracy and I were at a funeral together. And typically at funerals, you know, you, you know, but hey, good example, and I was doing that. Um, but this lady came in and sat in front of us, and like, when she's walking toward you, like, she looked beautiful from the front. But she sat in front of us, and the back of her head was like a bird's nest. 
I mean, like the front was beautiful. The back of her head was a bird's nest. And I'm just looking at that thinking, does this woman not own a mirror? Like, does she not know that trick where you can actually see back your head? But my sister leaned over. This is a funeral. My sister leaned over and said, she must have ran out of time. <laughs> she must have ran out of time. You understand? You can't see the back of your head. There are just parts of yourself that are absolutely, completely outside. Like everybody in this church just went. Yeah. Yeah. We could take a minute and let the people behind you just tell you how you did. Yeah. How many of you think you're sitting behind somebody who ran out of time? Go ahead. Just lift your. Yeah. 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 You ran out of time. Now, you understand what I'm just, I, I, I'm being funny. I'm being, I'm being, I'm being silly, but. Um, we just don't see ourselves well. I say things, and I know how I meant them, but I don't know how it sounded. And so with my words, I can hurt people. And I didn't mean to hurt people. It's not, it's not what I meant, but I did. You understand? Or, or, or you do something and, and you weren't thinking about how it affected somebody else. Or maybe you thought nobody saw it at all. And so you don't really see it the way it is. And so that is really why we need each other. But this is hard. In this moment of our church's life, we really need to hear from God, and I've been preaching all year about the necessity of hearing from God, and, and I want us to listen for God's voice together because I want us to continue moving into the future that God has for us together. I was talking to Greg Sizemore, one of our pastors. He's a pastor of Creekside in Dallas, Georgia, one of our church plants, and Greg's one of our guys, and Greg has been praying for our congregation. And Greg said that one of the things that God's just laid on his heart to, to pray for us is to pray that Woodburn Baptist Church would have supernatural unity. I love that. That we need supernatural unity to be what God wants us to be, to, to, to find and, and hear and, and walk into the future God has for us. We need supernatural unity. You know, this is what that looks like, and this is how you get there, and this is hard. If it were easy, we'd have gotten there a long time ago, right? It's these really, really difficult conversations. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Now, rebuke sounds like a really harsh word, and I would just, if you're doing this harshly, you're probably doing it wrong. Rebuke doesn't necessarily mean that you get to be superior it doesn't mean that you take the light and being the person that gets to go down the pew and point out everybody else's sin. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. This is a mutual relationship of humility and love. In other words, if you're going to be correcting something that you see in my life, if, if you're going to be taking the splinter out of my eye, if, if you're going to be pointing out the sin in me, then you at least owe it to me to love me. You understand? You at least owe it to me to love me. And if you don't love me, then there is sin in your life that, that needs to be worked out. You, you at least owe it to me to love me first. So, so we're talking about a, a community where there's real love, like not fake love 
not, not cheap, shallow love, but the real thing. Where we love each other so much that we will step into the mess of each other's lives. And life gets messy. And if we're not willing to go into those places with one another, then I don't really know if we can help each other very much stay on the path that Christ has for us. And I will never forget one of the turning points in my life and my family's life. I was... I don't, I don't know how old I was. I was probably a young teenager, 12, 13. But, but my mom and dad were really having trouble. They were really having trouble. And it really looked like they would divorce. And I'll just never forget the day, because it was an awful day. But there was a man from church, not the pastor. I mean, I'm not, I mean, it could have been the pastor, but it wasn't the pastor. It was just a guy from church who really, really loved my mom and dad and really loved our family. And he loved us enough to, like, show up at the house. Like, I don't think I would show up at my house. Like, you don't know my mama? Like, my mama had been yelling outside in the yard, and we're saying, Mama, the dyers are going to hear us. Would you please come back in? I mean, it was ugly. We were, we were coming apart. But this friend from church walked into our living room and sat all of us down and said, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving until you all fix this. Okay, first off, this man is just like, you know, too dumb to know. You can't fix stuff just like that because somebody from church walked in and said, I ain't leaving. And since he was too dumb to know that, like, it can't happen like that, it happened like that. Like, he wasn't Dr. Phil or Oprah or anybody. He didn't have any solutions other than, I'm here and I won't be leaving until Don Diane work it out. Because he loved our family. Do you understand that? All he brought was love, but he just said, you know, I see what's happening here, and I'm not going to stand here and watch this family go down the toilet. I'm not going to stand here and watch you all throw it away. It, it matters to me. I mean, this is what he said. And he did not leave. And I know you say, well, you can't fix the family. Uh, well, you can. He did. Because if we didn't fix it, he wasn't leaving. That just takes something. And I love that man. You know, we owe so much to that man. It wasn't his business. I mean, as it turns out, you know, mom and dad could have divorced him and we could all hate him forever for putting his nose in. But, you know, it's a risk you take. It's really worth the risk for a 12-year-old boy. You know, I mean, my life could have been completely different. I mean, do you understand how many opportunities we have just to, to, to step in out of love? And I, I'm, I'm saying it again and again and again. If you can't do it out of love, then you've got problems. We need to be confronting you. But, but this is love. I mean, we live our lives close to one another, so close that, that honestly, we sometimes see things. And, and, and I can see, you all know me so well. I've been your pastor 24 years. You can set your watch by me. You know my ways. You know how I am. And if you see something change, 
then, then, then you're going to notice it, you're going to see it, and you have an obligation to come to me. I'm probably not going to like it. But you've got to come. I mean, please. If you see me wandering into sin or if you see me doing something questionable, you've got to stand in front of me and wave your arms out of love and say, Pastor Tim, what are you doing? What's going on? Why would you say that? Why would you do that? Pastor Tim, we love you. What's happening in your life? I mean, you have a duty to me if you love me, and I have the same obligation to you. Again, these are hard conversations. But Jesus over and over and over says this is what the body of Christ looks like. We have the hard conversations because we love each other. This is not about judging and being judged. This is about forgiving and being forgiven. So notice what Jesus says. First off, it's, it's very personal. If another believer sins, correct, rebuke that person. Then if there is repentance, forgive. So understand, Jesus' implication, his example suggests it's interpersonal. That person's done something that hurts you, that offends you. And so Jesus gives a very, very simple way for addressing that. You go to the person. To the person. You don't get to go to the small group first to see if everybody else sees what, what you're seeing. You don't get to do that. You may be wrong, but it's better to be wrong than to be a gossip. So you don't get to go around and tell other people. You don't get to get people on your side. You, you don't get to do that. You have to go to the person. Well, Pastor Tim, I'm not very good at that sort of thing. Well, if you're not very good at going to people, then you better stop being so good at being mad at people and getting hurt. I mean, because this is the only option. Jesus gives us one. And the option is always go to the person. If you think you've hurt somebody, Jesus says, you go to that person. If somebody hurts you, you still got to go to the person. One way or the other, you've still got to go. You. Like, it's not one of those, well, if they come back and apologize, then we'll talk. No, no, no. No, you got to go. It's always on you to do the going. It's always on you. It's always on me to, to initiate the hard conversation. And then understand, it, it, it's difficult, but it's important. You forgive always, again and again, no exceptions. You forgive Always, again and again, Jesus says, if the same person does the same thing to you seven times in a day, and every time they say, sorry, dude, like one time, and then they say they're sorry, I'm thinking, okay, okay, no problem. Second time, it's like, hmm, you know, and then the third time, they're like, sorry, dude, it's like pretty soon I recognize that you can put your sorries in a sack, and they ain't worth nothing. You know, you just keep on coming back doing it. Say sorry. You know, I, I, I pretty soon recognize you don't mean sorry. Sorry don't mean nothing. Done done it seven times, and it ain't even lunch yet. Your sorry don't mean nothing. And what does Jesus say about that? Same person, 
I mean, what kind of jerk is this? It's the kind of jerk that you forgive every time. Forgive always, again and again. There are no exceptions. Pastor Tim, you don't know what they did to me. You forgive. Well, I have forgiven, but that don't mean I have to like them. Would you grow up? I mean, can you, can you imagine Jesus saying that? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do, but I don't like them. I mean, I mean it's Jesus that we're imitating, right? Now, I know that forgiveness... It takes a miracle. I mean, every time. It is not in my heart. It's not in your heart. Forgiveness is really, really not something that we do well. It's, it is God's territory. It's God's prerogative. It, it takes a miracle every single time. But I happen to believe in a God who works miracles. And, and if Jesus says forgive every single time, then whatever that's going to take for you, he's going to provide it. Which is exactly why when Jesus preaches this lesson to the disciples, what's the next words out of their mouth? Increase our faith. I mean, when Jesus says, you know, that guy, that girl, seven times in a day, you got to forgive every single time. you got to forgive always, again and again, no exceptions. The disciples say, well, you're going to have to increase our faith. You say, I'm not, I don't make this stuff up. Y'all see that, right? They say, you will have to increase our faith. In other words, that is not in us. That, that is not in us. That forgiveness is not located in this heart of mine. And what does Jesus say? If, if it's more faith you need, what does Jesus say? If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could... Interesting. Jesus says this kind of thing several times, but in this instance, he says something different. So pay attention to the difference. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this, now usually he's going to say to a mountain, be thou moved, which is awesome. But here, where we're talking about forgiveness, we're not talking to mountains. We're talking to what? A mulberry tree. Did we just lower... We were moving mountains in other places, but now we're just talking to shrubbery. A mulberry tree. You're not really mountain people. You're not mountain movers. Let's just, you know, go into shrubbery. You could say to this mulberry, no, why a mulberry tree? Because in Jesus' day, in their culture, the mulberry tree was considered to be the most deeply rooted plant. Mulberry trees were known for the roots to just go down forever. It was so difficult to kill, to move, to cut down a mulberry tree. The roots just go down forever. And when you've been practicing remembering how they hurt you all of these years, when you've been carrying this grudge for all this time, man, those roots just go down deep. I mean, the roots of bitterness, the roots of pain. It's very, very hard to, to pull that up now by the roots. It, it goes down so deep. And, and I think that's why Jesus here switches the metaphor. 
All it, it's, it's the faith to move a mulberry tree. It's the faith to pull it up by the roots. But whatever Jesus requires of you, he's going to provide what's necessary. So if it's faith, if it's grace, if it's love, if it's a miracle of forgiveness, he's going to provide that. You have to forgive. You have to forgive. Again and again. Now, again, I remind you, this is a community. This is mutual, which means you also have to be forgiven. I think for most of us, that would be a, a great place to start. Practice being forgiven. Because for a lot of us, like on this forgive, we're instantly on the side of, well, I can't be forgiving this person after what they've done to me. But what you forget, can I say this, and I love you so much, can I just say this? I know you have difficult people in your life, hard to forgive, but you are the difficult person in somebody else's life. You are. You are. You feel so entitled to your anger, but can you even imagine being your wife? I mean, can you even imagine what it is to live with you, to, to be in church with you? I mean, it's so easy to get so righteous about how other people have hurt us and harmed us and, and, and how other people have offended us, but do you have any idea what it is to have you? I mean, there's somebody in this world Stumbling over you. When's the last time in your life somebody came to you and, and you had to say, I'm sorry? When's the last time you, you said those words? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just sorry. Because if you don't use those words often, that's a bad sign for you. And that person who can never say, I'm sorry, is usually the very same person who can't say, I forgive you. But Jesus just wants us to know that these things are connected. That experience of forgiving and being forgiven, it, it, it kind of comes from the same place. And, and once you learn just to let that forgiveness flow through you, then, then you recognize, man, I, I require as much forgiveness as I ever have to give. It, it, it's just our, our life together. So Jesus wraps it up with a little parable. This one take but a second, you all. Um, Jesus says, so, verse 7. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, precious, come in, come into this house, you must be tired? What's Jesus saying? When the servant comes in from doing the work, does the master say, oh my goodness, look who's had a hard day? No. The master says, fix my supper, put on your apron, serve me while I eat, then you can eat later. And does the master ever say, I don't think I say enough how much I appreciate all you do for me. No. Does the master thank the servant for doing what he was supposed to do? No. Verse 10. In the same way. In the same way. Interestingly, the Greek words there, in the same way, they mean in the same way. 
That's what they mean. So in other words, in the same way, when you obey me, you should say, unworthy servant. I'm just doing my duty. Okay? So we'll wrap it up real quickly. Number one, don't forget you're a Christ servant. You are Christ's servant. He's the master, you're the servant. And so he has the authority to command your life. And whatever he says do, then you're supposed to do it. Sometimes he will ask you to do things very, very difficult for you. You do it anyway. Sometimes he asks you to fall into habits that just are not your natural you know, tendency. You know, to come to church at 8 in the morning. Some of you just, you know, this is really supernatural. Praise the Lord. You do it anyway. You, you, you just do it. You just, you just do it. Don't forget that you are Christ's servant. Uh, number two, live every day with a sense of duty, a sense of oughtness. You know what I'm saying? This is normal, and this is healthy, and this is good. Jesus says the person who loves their life, the person who lives for themselves, try to cling to their life, they're just going to lose it. It doesn't work that way. So that person who wrote the article I read that said, you've got to shake loose of all of the shoulds and have-tos, and you just got to live your life to love your life. See, the problem is it's that process of getting rid of all the shoulds and have-tos. So, so you picture your life like an onion with all these layers, and you're going to peel back these layers of should and have to and ought to, so you can love your life, right? So you peel back that, that layer of obligation at church. Pastor Tim always coming up with ideas of things you ought to do. Done with that. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna have some me time. Peel back that layer of church obligation. Peel it off. That layer of obligation in your marriage, just tired of coming home every day and having that man ask what's for supper. You're just fed up with all the shoulds and have-tos of trying to be a good spouse. Done with that, peel it off. Peel back that layer of marital obligation, trying to be faithful, all that. Get rid of that. And, and obligations to our children. For God made daycare, Right? Let's just, let's just somehow live our lives in such a way where, where we don't really have to raise our own kids. Let's drop them off at the church, you know, or let's just find a, a, somebody else who will watch them, who will take care of them, who will train them, who will teach them. You know, we don't have time for that. And so we peel back all of these layers of obligation, obligations as, as citizens of a great country. Just get rid of all that. Just peel back all those layers of should and have to and, and must. And what do you have in the middle? Have you ever really peeled off all the layers of an onion? What's in the middle? Nothing. As it turns out, the onion was the layers. Like that is actually what an onion is. And so in your life, when you're peeling back all these shoulds and have-tos and musts, you eventually find out that in that process of trying to love your life, you end up removing all of the things that make life, life. You live every day with a sense of duty, a sense of oughtness. That's healthy. It's, it's, it's Christian. It, it's a good sign that you feel a sense of moral obligation to your marriage, to your family, to your church, to your job, 
to your God, that's, that, that's a good sign. And then this last thing, y'all, I mean, don't do what you want, do what you should. A whole lot of things I wanted to do this week I didn't do because I shouldn't do them, you know. There are things I needed to do more. And, and this is what Jesus says. This is what our lives look like. You, you do a whole lot because it's your duty. Because you're supposed to. Because as Jesus would say, you must. And when you've done these things, whether it's, it's the miracle of forgiveness or setting a good example before your own children when it's over, don't be looking for it, you know, oh, wow, what a, what a great person you are. Well, what a great job. Don't look for reward or applause or recognition because Jesus says, at the end of the day, you just did what you're supposed to do. That's just what Jesus calls duty. We are his unworthy servants. We just simply must do our duty. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for my friend Bruce, who stepped into my family's living room when I was a boy, stepped into the mess of my family, stuck his nose in, Lord, where it probably didn't belong, and made an incredibly positive difference in my life. Lord, I, I pray that as brothers and sisters, Lord, in, in your family, that we would love each other in all the ways that are so wonderful and easy, Lord, but also in all the ways that are hard. Lord, you say that as iron sharpens iron, that's the way a brother sharpens a brother, Lord. But when iron sharpens iron, sparks fly. God, make us willing to do the hard work of apologizing and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving again but because this is what your servants do and make us mindful lord of all of the ways that our behavior our words our actions rub off on other people lord sometimes we are the stumbling block sometimes we are the discouragement <clears throat> Sometimes we are the reason, Lord, that other people turn away from you. God, help us to watch ourselves. Lord, this isn't something extra. This isn't something special. This is just what your followers do. This is how we're supposed to live. Lord Jesus, increase our faith. And help us, Lord, to put all of our faith in you. That truly, unworthy as we are, we might live as your servants, obediently and joyfully. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Master.